Well, welcome back, Dr. Driscoll. It's such a joy to have you here again today. Thank you for having me, Dr. Schaffner. It's, it's a, really an honor. Oh, well, we thought it would be really fun to have you back on the podcast and to share this information with our community and our audience, um, especially in light of the virus, right? And you're such an expert and really how I got to know your work is your whole model of how you look at POTS and even mast cell activation syndrome and really these underlying um, viral infections and this inflammatory response that we see that happens in these patients. And so we wanna really just bring your knowledge to present day and my, my goal is to really, how do we empower people during this really unprecedented time and you know put our heads together so people can really feel safe. And if of course they are affected by uh, coronavirus that you know, we can um, give them solutions and tools to recover. So um, I'm really excited to have this conversation. Oh, I am too. I am too. And it's not really just coronavirus, right? Or COVID. There's so many other potential triggers for abnormal inflammation and they usually don't get recognized. Um, inflammatory cytokines often aren't measured. So of course, they're not going to be identified if we aren't measuring them. But I think undiagnosed inflammation is a cause of so much chronic illness and even illness or a tendency to just not feel good as we get older too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, such a great point. And, you know, before, you know, we dive in, I, you know, I just want to, um, our audience to get to know you a little bit more. And how has your life really changed, you know, in the land of COVID, you know, 19 or SARS-CoV-2? Yeah. How are you coping and how has your practice really um, changed during this time? Yeah, it's such a strange time, isn't it? It's like every day we're trying to decide, should we change the way we do things? And how long is this going to last? Should we still go to the office? I am a long distance through telemedicine about 95% of the time now. Uh, we have uh, two or three staff members that still come in. And we have a couple of patients come in live every month um, and try to protect ourselves. But I had a virus was it now 14 years ago or so that triggered my POTS and uh, I had an abnormal reaction to it and then my son got a series of three viruses and then he was completely disabled. So this uh, is an area that I'm very familiar with and I had to dive in to figure out what just happened to us and why can no no one figure this out? What tools can we use to, to help ourselves? And it was really brand new science at the time. So this, I can get deep into Nerdville talking about inflammation. <laughs> well, let's, you know, pick your brain. And, you know, I think you've already mentioned so many great points. And, you know, when we look at chronic infections and of course how we, or chronic illness rather, and um, also kind of what's going on today, there's um, these two kind of um, ideas to hold. It's the actual virus and then the immune system's uh, response to the virus, um, yes. inflammatory process. So can you just share where you stand and how you're helping people through, you know, treating, is it a viral infection? Is it an inflammatory response? Is it both? And how do you make sense of all of this? Right. That can be very hard. But one of the first study, studies we did, gosh, it's been 12, 10 years or so in genetic disease investigators was a complete inflammatory cytokine and chemokine profile. And we saw such extreme irregularities with tra- traditional markers for inflammation, CRP, said rate, were perfectly normal. I thought, okay, I can see how we're missing this sort of thing. So it can be a tough puzzle to pick apart, but POTS is so 
focused. Um, not everyone develops POTS, right? You can get an abnormal inflammatory response and get pneumonia. You can, um, if you end up with POTS, it narrows the field for us. And we looked at what kind of inflammatory cytokines can affect the cardiovascular system and then just kind of went from there. And then what can we do about it too? What kind of damage is that doing? How can we pick up the pieces? And most of us don't know our genes. We don't know if we have genes that are inflammatory unless there's maybe an autoimmune condition. So it'd be great to know how to help control the bad effects from inflammation. Not all inflammation is bad, right? It helps us heal. But when it's chronic, it's bad without lowering the immune system. Um, I see a lot of people online saying there's a bad infection out there. How can we raise our immune system? I understand their thinking. And my thinking was immediately, how can we control the inflammatory response instead? And the body has ways to do that. But if our genetics fall down somewhere in that pathway, we have to help it. Mm -hmm. And we can, and I think we should. <laughs> mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so, you know, just again, I've studied your work. I've, you know, talked to you and just, you know, my curiosity, of course, is, um, you know, especially with our POTS patients, do you feel like the inflammatory process that gets triggered by a virus, um, that there are vulnerabilities or susceptibilities in certain body systems or tissues for that patient that make them more vulnerable to have this POTS presentation? Or what has your research led you to look at? Right. It can be hard to pick that apart in each patient, honestly. And sometimes you're looking at chicken and egg sort of things. But um, we want to look at, does it, does it show patterns of illness? For example, with chronic inflammation, certain dominoes start falling. And in the Driscoll theory, the book I wrote, gosh, eight years ago, gosh, time flies. Um, we released a propensity for abnormal intracranial pressure, usually high intracranial pressure in those patients. We want to correct that, okay? Well, then we're working on the inflammation. But as you know, inflammation, especially when chronic, causes an increase in reactive oxygen species, so or ROS. Those inflammatory cells release all these chemicals, and the chemicals do, do damage. One of them, ROS, is oxidative. And oxidation is the enemy of chronic inflammation. If you're trying to fight chronic in inflammation, you need to control the oxidation. Oxidation then leads to, ironically, more inflammation. And it, it damages the cells. It can damage blood vessels, tissue, um, and it can change the brain chemistry. It changes it more to higher levels of glutamate, more anxiety, kind of OCD type presentations. So if we're trying to control an inflammatory response, we have a couple ways of doing that without lowering the immune system. Uh, one is to control the oxidation. And I had to come up with something to do that even in my own uh, case. The other one is to allow the body to work properly. Uh, how does the body normally control inflammation? And that's the vagus nerve, the anti-inflammatory nerve of the body. So if that's not working well, then you're fighting against uh, too much and it overwhelms the body. So we hit both of those and the response is amazing. Mm -hmm. yeah. Can you share a little bit about your thought processes of how you really you know, turn these patients around and what tools yeah. you've developed um, in this journey? Right. 
Right. And we've talked about one of these before, the vagus nerve support. This was something it took me years to figure out. <laughs> but ultimately, I realized it wasn't really a vagus nerve problem that I was having. I had complete gastroparesis and no one could help me. So I ended up trying to figure out, okay, if it is a vagus nerve problem, what opportunity do we have to help that? And I remember that there's a tiny postganglionic or secondary nerve that I used an agonist of the neurotransmitter acetylcholine to try to stimulate that nerve. And it worked beautifully. And the agonist for that is nicotine. But nicotine is highly inflammatory. So then I had to look at how could we put something together, orally would be great, that could uh, stimulate the postganglionic vagus nerve or the receptor itself and was able to, to do that, praise God. So that's um, Parasym Plus, supports the parasympathetic nervous system. It covers for genetic defects in the pathway of acetylcholine, and it also crosses the blood-brain barrier. Um, and that is so important because some of that inflammation, if it's um, vascular inflammation, the blood-brain barrier can start to break down. And then we get more uh, psych symptoms, lots more anxiety, more oh, easy agitation, let's say. <laughs> okay, so we need to support that and the brain fog can get really bad and I completely lost my short-term memory. Um, so that's, that's really powerful to get that going. But to work on acetylcholine and inflammation, Again, forgive me if this is too much detail. <laughs> okay, well, I had to study macrophages. And macrophages, of course, are, are, are kind of bipolar cells. They can be anti-inflammatory. They can be in the body to clean up messes, okay? Or they can also be inflammatory and encourage more inflammation. They go in the connective tissue. And we want to keep them controlled. And there is a site on the macrophages that keeps them in line, if you will, so they don't get too carried away. That site is called the alpha-7 subunit nicotinic acetylcholinergic receptor. And we wanted to make sure that Parasim Plus bound to that receptor and kept the macrophages controlled, um, not only for, say, tissue, connective tissue, et cetera, but macrophages were found in multiple sclerosis lesions too. And uh, one of the first symptoms oftentimes of multiple sclerosis is gastroparesis. And when I heard that, and I was talking to a patient with MS, I said, well, okay, if that's your first symptom, there's no way that's already demyelinating, right? Mm -hmm. Something else is going on, but that receptor is really important. And then with COVID, uh, of course, we worry about the lungs first, not only the lungs, right? We have to worry about everything. It, it does damage everywhere. But the uh, cytokine that gets activated or tends to with COVID so dramatically in the lungs is called interleukin-8. And interleukin-8 releases so much of oxygen species. And sedation is so damaging to the tissue that the lungs get so much more inflamed and then the fluid starts coming in um, and it destroys the cells even. So we have ways to control that by uh, using a product I came up with called NACMAX, uh, which will raise glutathione and help with oxidation. Mm -hmm. So you gave us a lot of great information. <laughs> so just to break this down, 
Um, am I understanding how the viruses that we're, um, some people with chronic conditions are vulnerable to, um, that because of mm -hmm. genetic propensity and a lot of other maybe factors that they have this, you know, inflammatory process that then affects, you know, basically the postganglionic vagus nerve connection. So they're not making um, acetylcholine. And then also the macrophages might not be getting that acetylcholine um, communication to kind of calm the inflammatory response. So it's like this inflammatory process kind of disrupts the acetylcholine production. Is that what I'm understanding? That's exactly right. And how ironic is that, that inflam some inflammatory cytokines can block the release of acetylcholine. And if you're already a patient dealing with tons of inflammation, and then you've got a double whammy there, uh, then you no longer have your vagus nerve to help. So uh, that's, that's combination is rough. Mm -hmm. Been there. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's ways around it. And, you know, um, oxidation, I had an experience. And I think so much of what I learned along my journey was from personal experience. <laughs> Which there's got to be a better way, right? <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I honor the doctors who, you know, come up with the medicine through personal experiences. I know, yeah, it's a oh, but a very yeah. meaningful one to say the least. Well, it, it was so dramatic in me, and I think if I hadn't been a sick patient, I maybe wouldn't have been as motivated, you know. Or if someone else could have helped me, that would have been okay. Or if I could have just kind of pushed through, maybe I would have just pushed through. I couldn't. I was completely disabled. But I was in the hospital four or five years ago. I had some infections. I couldn't fight well. And they started to break my red blood cells and they released a lot of iron. They gave me a few transfusions and my body just broke the red blood cells again. And the iron released from red blood cells is very oxidative. Um, they started me on vitamin C in the hospital. And I was very impressed with that. I thought, wow, who does that? You know, But I was so extraordinarily ill. And when I went home, I tried lining up 40 grams of vitamin C. And I said, I'm just going to take it to tolerance, right? I'm going to take it till I have diarrhea. I took that entire 40 grams, 80 pills, and nothing. Uh, okay, we need bigger guns. Okay, what kind of bigger guns can we do uh, to raise glutathione to help with oxidation? And I had tried oral, I had tried suppository through the skin, inhaled, I tried it all, and I felt nothing. But N-acetylcysteine is the... the uh, basically the major factor that limits the body's production of uh, its own glutathione. So I got N-acetylcysteine and then worked on a blend where when the body starts to produce its own glutathione, it could be recycled and it could go up higher. And then because of so much uh, gut inflammation, I wanted to cover for people who got low in selenium. One of the enzymes that is needed to produce glutathione is uh, glutathione peroxidase and it's a selenium-based enzyme. So that took some work. If you go too high on some of the ingredients, it switches from antioxidants to oxidant, but got it right. And I remember the day uh, I started getting it right. I woke up the next day and I thought, oh, I've been cured. You know, <laughs> I hadn't been cured. It was still months to pull out of it, but it was so dramatic. And to this day, I still take three a day. If I go down to two a day, um, some of that anxiety feeling starts creeping in. Mm -hmm. 
oh no, I don't want that. That was such a weird response. I remember looking at like an iPad and when I was sick out of the hospital and if I saw some, a video or a picture of someone at a high height, I had like a little panic attack. I said, what? This has never happened before. Diana, you're not in the iPad. Okay. You're not in this movie. You're not on a rooftop. I calm myself down. I'd look again. Same thing would happen. And it wasn't like all of a sudden I had developed anxiety. Um, that oxidation was changing the brain chemistry and it responded beautifully. But as a uh, inflammatory patient, it's very easy for me to have too much oxidation. But once you get rid of that feeling, you never want to have it again. <laughs> and to get that balance back is so awesome. So it's just one of my friends and it's something my kids and my husband actually takes too regularly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And do you feel that, um, you know, just maybe the patients that you see are just in general, because, you know, glutathione works for some people and then doesn't work for other people. And right. what you're sharing is that um, potentially when you give people the building blocks to make their own glutathione, that right. they that actually respond better. Um, do you just see a, any rhyme or reason or who that, um, what individuals really benefit from this strategy versus the glutathione alone strategy? Right. What I found with um, the patients who did well with glutathione, it was usually IV, um, but they became very dependent upon it because they weren't making their own. And I saw a heartbreaking case on social media where um, she was doing her own IVs basically every day. And she said, now I have no blood vessels left to tap. I'm doing my toes. I thought she was 23 years old what are you going to do? You know, so I was very motivated to try to figure out a better way to do that. And I couldn't imagine my kids having to give themselves IVs. So I think we're still trying to figure out who responds well, who doesn't. I know for me, it, it, I just didn't feel anything, mm -hmm. but um, it was great to be able to figure out a mix that would actually do something. And it was fairly dramatic too. It's interesting too, though, since we're talking about viruses, um, the research with N-acetylcysteine and viruses is interesting. Um, it's been shown to actually help um, influenza, uh, the Singapore flu, for example, the number of patients with symptoms in one study was 25% versus 75% without N-acetylcysteine. Um, the HIV studies too, they respond very well to N-acetylcysteine. So we can use research done in other conditions that are still inflammatory, oxidative, and apply some of what we learn uh, to say invisible illnesses, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's, um, that's great. You know, I, we love it when um, we find things that have multiple functions and uses in the body. And I think that's great research, especially, um, you know, to point out during this time. And before yeah. we move on with the glutathione, I'm just thinking about, you know, my patient base and people who, you know, some of their questions um, that might be coming up, you know, mm -hmm. there are the people who do really badly, right, from glutathione that you give them glutathione and they feel like completely worse. And we think about right. that as like maybe a molybdenum deficiency or mm -hmm. some, you know, SNP that, you know, might be you know, causing their reaction, but do you find mm. that, um, or do you have experience or comments on those patients and why they do better with your, your mix for people to create their own glutathione? I don't, I don't have an answer for you, but I will tell you something I've noticed that I think is 
is a puzzle that we do check glutathione levels in the blood. Mm. And although it's not necessarily indicative of what's on the brain, right? I just wanted a window to see what was going on. And I did notice some of the, some patients, the levels was high, the level was high. I thought the levels shouldn't be high. They weren't taking anything to increase it. Is there some issue there? You know, we haven't fully understood. So I just uh, took that information, kind of tucked it back <laughs> as we worked through some things. Um, we'll, we'll keep that in mind. I, I don't have an answer, but you know there's an answer for that somewhere, and it's likely genetic, right? <laughs> so. I know the detective work that we're all, um, you know, I find a lot of our, you know, role in uh, the seats that we sit um, mm -hmm. are, just, you know, listening, observing, uh, looking at patterns and connecting the dots. Right. I think that's a big part of our work. That's right. And isn't it sad? I remember as a patient, I couldn't get doctors to be looking at patterns in my illness. So I thought these patterns must mean something, you know, but their job really wasn't to play detective. I kind of understand that now, but I saw patients talking on social media and it was very clear that there were patterns. And it seems like when I went to doctors, they were ignoring the very clear patterns that some are visible, you know, like large pupils, for example, or flushing. And um, how is that getting ignored? And instead, I was told I must be just hypervigilant or more aware of my own bodily functions. <laughs> and so that was very frustrating as a patient to not be able to get validation for some of the, the illness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I, and I see this pattern that you specialize in. I see these mm. young women with um, POTS, they might have anxiety or OCD. They might have right. constipation or as extreme as gastroparesis. Uh, they might right. have mast cell activation syndrome, mm -hmm. uh, a mold sensitivity, maybe a Bartonella infection, maybe a viral infection, um, right. maybe um, a history or kind of a spectrum of EDS. And so it's just, you know, I know mm -hmm. that's a lot for a pattern, but there are, these, you know, there, this is, you know, the people we treat. And so I, right. I you know, I, I appreciate your lens on this pattern. And I mean, you've mm -hmm. talked about the inflammatory response being a through line for this pattern, but are there right. any other like any other, um, you know, things that you've uncovered when you're, when you're treating a patient uh, like this? Yes. Well, we're going to be releasing more information soon. Okay. Uh, what I've been working on for, gosh, 10 years now are some of the genes at play mm -hmm. with this. And I, I agree. It's almost like it depends what doctor we end up with, what label we get. You know, uh, had I gone to a different doctor, maybe I would have been diagnosed fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue syndrome or, or what have you. So we see the commonalities as practitioners, right? I certainly saw that as a patient. We're just not digging deeply enough. The abnormal intracranial, intracranial pressure is a, a big thing. It's not everybody, but it, it's, it's one aspect that was getting ignored and that can be significant. Um, so genes is really where the interest is for me, mm -hmm. because it gives us the objectivity. As patients, we need validation mm -hmm. for the suffering we have. And the labels that we currently have, be it POTS, chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, you name it, are insufficient. Um, they, and there are many doctors who just kind of poo-poo that. But if we could label based on the genes and say, oh, with this genetic setup, we have to be careful, you could get really sick this could get high in the blood, this kind of damage could occur and 
there it is, high in the bottom, oh, and there's the damage. It just ties it all together in a little bow, and we can label it appropriately, and patients don't have to fight to get the help that they need or to get the understanding and the, the compassion that they need. There's so much unnecessary suffering. We are kind of talking about that, how we see it. I would have never understood that, honestly, looking back, had I not lived through it. You know, and watch my kids live through it. We don't learn that in school. We just don't. We need to. <laughs> and research is at least 15 years ahead of where practitioners are. Someday it won't be this hard, but it is very hard for patients right now. And it's, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. So I know you see it every day. It's a personal mission for me to expose some of these conditions for what they really are. Yeah. And Waiting for consensus for labels could take a long time, um, but we need to keep pushing toward that. So, yeah, it's a process, right? <laughs> oh, absolutely, and we're so grateful your brain is on this process. And oh, you're so it, kind. It, yeah, and just you know, it's really the, you know, the future of personalized medicine, especially as it relates mm -hmm. to chronic illness. And I agree. Right. That, you know, so many of our patients. Um, deal with so much suffering in the attempt to find a doctor who will, you know, hear them, see them, even if they don't have the labels or the tools or the framework, you know, to right. what they're going through. And I, you know, yeah. one of the things that we've always kind of contemplated that the illnesses are ahead of our understanding, you know, and so it's like up to, you know, us to figure out how to put all the pieces together. And then I appreciate you really doing the research and the due diligence yeah. to see what's going on. Cause I, I think it's, um, you know, we're in the middle of a paradigm change, right? We're in the middle of oh, yes. a paradigm change to say the least. Um, right. No, so. so many paradigm changes right now. Yeah. It's on all levels right now. I know. We're, we're probably going to be switching um, from a fear of the physical effects of the virus to a whole lot of mental illness from just dealing with, dealing with it. I feel like I was disabled for 12 years and searching for answers that whole time. And once you go through a journey like that, I, you, you really end up feeling invincible, you know, to some degree. And you're like, oh, you can handle anything. Uh, people, especially young people, who, who, this may be their first challenge to, to deal with is, I, I really feel for them, the unknown. That's mm -hmm. a hard thing to handle. We will get to the other side. I believe in how strong uh, the science is and how many people are looking for answers, we'll get to the other side of COVID, I have no doubt. Um, we don't know when, and uh, we have to be able to keep our wits about us while we work the problem. So I always had a motto, stay in the science, we'll get the answers, but um, the world's basically semi-paused while we're all scrambling, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I appreciate that message yeah. of hope and you know i think it's important because it is um you know i, I think it, you know as we all are really living one day at a time with the amount of uncertainty around us right now that's um, true mm -hmm. and then dr driscoll i guess um kind of in kind of winding our conversation down one of the things I and mean, you've done a great job and i've been using your parison plus especially with patients oh, and i've um, been seeing some great results so it's been a Excellent. kind of a missing uh, piece in my toolkit so that's been really wonderful and i'm excited to you know try your other products and yeah. um you know i i guess my you know my my closing question is 
you know, when you control the inflammation and kind of correct the imbalances that the inflammation has caused, do you still find the need to really treat the virus and try to, you know, spread viruses in the body? And how do you, how do you tackle that piece? That is such a great question. I meant to say something about that. It's easy to forget this, but the studies of HIV patients make it very obvious. As inflammation goes up, the immune system goes down. And in an HIV patient, um, if they get any inflammation, doctors have to jump on it right away because they can't handle any more loss of, of uh, immune system. So if we want to support our immune system, we must control inflammation. It's kind of a clever way to work around it, mm -hmm. if you will, if you can't work directly through it. Mm -hmm. We will eventually get to the point we can work better through things. But some of these invisible illnesses like POTS, chronic fatigue syndrome, et cetera, it, they're not necessarily triggered by viruses. It can be certain bacteria, the ones that have lipopolysaccharide coatings on there, they're very inflammatory. It can be physical trauma or even mental trauma or concussion, for example. All of those are inflammatory events though. So we wanna play detective and figure that out and then look at the problem and start approaching treatment for them. So it's everyone's a puzzle and every case is different. I have never seen two the same, um, but I love puzzles. <laughs> so I love the science. Uh, yeah, so it's right up my alley. Thank goodness um, I was motivated to get answers because again, my kids were affected and I don't know what would have happened if I hadn't continued to dig deeper. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mm know. -hmm. Yeah, I appreciate you sh sharing all of this. And yeah, that makes, you know, so much sense to me because, you know, when I look at all of the, you know, of course, we look at all these pathogens when we, a new patient comes in to see us, we look at that and light up right. a lot of other things um, as well. But, you know, I agree. It's like, um, if you just look at the pathogens alone and just think, you know, mm -hmm. oh, this is an infection, you kill the infection and then the body recovers. We know that's not the case with our patients. It's way more multifaceted than that. And so it's really, yeah. you know, I, I always talk about health as resilience and recovering the immune system. So, you know, we're, we're going to be engaged with our environment and pathogens and, you know, mm -hmm. all of these things. It's just how, you know, we're, we're meant to interact with our environment. That's so right. Resilient system. Right. It's usually a symbiotic relationship, right? <laughs> not always. Everyone's probably got one that's not. But um, in my body, uh, the inflammation was lowering my immune system and the Epstein-Barr virus went high. Uh, I got chronic candida. My body completely lost the ability to fight that. Um, treatment for that directly was insufficient. Mm -hmm. I had to control the inflammation. I had a fighting chance and I have a low immune system. I have low IgG and low IgA, yeah. um, but I haven't had to resort to direct treatment for that, mm -hmm. nor do I think I will ever have to, mm -hmm. but I do have a very big respect for viruses. <laughs> Absolutely. That's a trend right now that a lot of patients who you know, have POTS or PANS or some of these, you know, autoimmune, you know, conditions that they're um, getting IgG right. and, you know, because of their immune systems weak. So right. one of their tools is the um, getting, giving exogenous immunoglobulin to help them fight infections. And right. So, um, have you felt the need to guide people to that or have you just been able to divert them with this other path? Yeah, honestly, we've seen 
500 patients at Pods Care so far. We've only had a couple of instances where we referred to someone to take a look at that and give them some support. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not that common, but boy, that can be a real beast. At least there's opportunity for treatment though. Mm -hmm. uh, what we recommend with that is start low and slow because we do see with um, POTS patients, certainly oftentimes abnormal inflammatory response to I IgG yeah. um, or IVIG. So they can get um, brain swelling uh, and they're in the hospital for a while. And that's just a real beast. Yeah. So subcutaneous is awesome if we can do that. Yeah. But we haven't seen it that often. And even in my case, uh, my immunologist said, oh, you're fine, <laughs> be fine. <laughs> so yeah. Thank you. Um, well, I could sure. probably pick your brain all day and I, um, it's fine. Yeah. I always enjoy talking to oh, you. Well, I really enjoy talking to you as well. And is there anything in closing? We'll give people information about your products and where to find you and, you know, all of that good stuff. But right. is there anything, you know, in closing that you want to share with everyone today? Oh gosh. <laughs> if, if, if nothing else, you know, there's hope for COVID, there's hope for invisible illness. We, we cannot forget that. I know so many people are floundering trying to get answers, but there are answers out there. And there's another side to this. And someday we will be on the other side of it, but we just have to take care of each other. And thank heavens for people like you that you're reaching out to patients, you're available for them when they don't have others to turn to. And I cannot tell you how valuable that is as a patient who had no validation and nowhere to turn. Um, and that's a hard job. That's a very hard job because we don't have all the labels. We don't have all the answers, but um, there's some wonderful doctors out there like you that are helping others. And I wanna thank you as a former patient for that too. We are continuing to see patients at POTS Care. Uh, people uh, reach out to us from all over the world, which is amazing to me. And the products we talked about, NACMAX, Parison Plus, an amazing combination, is at VegasNerveSupport.com. And we hope to be expanding that line soon as the research deepens. Well, thank you so much for all of that wonderful information and your time and your work. Thank and you. we're excited to continue to learn more from you as your research um, unfolds and becomes public. And um, yeah. really grateful, Dr. Driscoll. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was great to see you again. Take care of yourself.